Welcome to the enchanting world of nursery rhymes, where childhood memories and timeless tales intertwine. Join us on the A Tisket Tasket podcast as we embark on a delightful journey through the rich history and captivating origins of beloved nursery rhymes. Tune in for an exploration that will delight nursery rhyme enthusiasts and folklore aficionados alike. And now your host, Gina. Hey, I'm leaving next week for the American Folklore Conference, and boy, am I getting nervous. The title of my presentation is Nursery Rhymes as Erosion Control, Keeping History Rooted in the Present, the theme of the conference is Roots and Rootlessness, and I'll be speaking about how scholars should consider nursery rhymes as important historical artifacts that should be continually studied. If you are in the Portland, Oregon area, come by and listen. If you'd like to listen to this presentation virtually, I'll have a recording up and ready of my presentation for sale on my Patreon and link in the description below. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit my website, also, I'm tinkering around with it, so if it looks a little bit different, that's why. Also, the link is in the description below for that as well, to see how you can do so. It would be a very big help. Finally, I'm announcing that I'm taking the month of November off. I need a break before the end of the year, and I'm incredibly busy with everything going on, but I will be happily back in December with some holiday-themed nursery rhymes. This week, we will finish up on the spooky tales for October, and then I will be back in December with an episode heralding the holiday season. Stay tuned for that. Now, let's move on to this week's episode. Today, I'm going to be talking about Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery. Written in 1948, The Lottery is a sinister short story that tells the story how evil can easily become commonplace. Jackson published the story in The New Yorker, and it was met with immediate criticism. Biographer Aaron McCarthy writes, The lottery appeared three weeks after Jackson's agent had submitted it, and there was instant controversy. Hundreds of readers canceled their subscriptions and wrote letters expressing their rage and confusion about the story. In one such letter, Miriam Friend, a librarian-turned-housewife, wrote, I frankly confess to be completely baffled by Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Will you please send us a brief explanation before my husband and I scratch right through our scalps trying to fathom it? Others called the story outrageous, gruesome, and utterly pointless. I will never buy the New Yorker again, one reader from Massachusetts wrote. I resent being tricked into reading perverted stories like the lottery. There were phone calls, too, though the New Yorker didn't keep a record of what was said or how many calls came in. McCarthy goes on to say that despite these criticisms, the lottery is a staple in high schools. And before I get into why that might be, let me read a short summary of the story. The villagers of a small town gather together in the square on June 27th, a beautiful day for the town lottery. In other towns, the lottery takes longer, but there are only 300 people in this village, so the lottery takes only two hours. Village children, who have just finished school for the summer, run around collecting stones. They put the stones in their pockets and make a pile in the square. Men gather next, followed by the women. Parents call their children over and families stand together. 
Mr. Summers runs the lottery because he has a lot of time to do things for the village. He arrives in the square with the black box, followed by Mr. Graves, the postmaster. This black box isn't the original box used for the lottery because the original was lost many years ago, even before the town elder, Old Man Warner, was born. Mr. Summers always suggests that they may make a new box because the current one is shabby, but no one wants to fool around with tradition. Mr. Summers did, however, convince the villagers to replace the traditional wood chips with slips of paper. Mr. Summers mixes up the slips of paper in the box. He and Mr. Graves made the papers the night before and then locked up the box at Mr. Summers' coal company. Before the lottery can begin, they make a list of all the families and households in the village. Mr. Summers is sworn in. Some people remember that in the past there used to be a song and a salute, but these have been lost. Tessie Hutchinson joins the crowd, flustered because she had forgotten that today was the day of the lottery. She joins her husband and children at the front of the crowd, and people joke about her late arrival. Mr. Summers asks whether anyone is absent, and the crowd responds that Dunbar isn't there. Mr. Summer asks who will draw for Mr. Dunbar, and Mrs. Dunbar says she will because she doesn't have a son who's old enough to do it for her. Mr. Summers asks whether the Watson boy will draw, and he answers that he will. Mr. Summers then asks to make sure that Old Man Warner is there too. Mr. Summer reminds everyone about the lottery rules. He'll read the names and the family heads up and draw a slip of paper. No one should look at the paper until everyone has drawn. He calls all the names, greeting each person as they come up to draw a paper. Mr. Adam tells Old Man Warner that people in the North Village might stop the lottery and Old Man Warner ridicules young people. He says that giving up the lottery could lead to a return to living in caves. Mrs. Adams says that the lottery has been given up in other villagers, and Old Man Warner says that's nothing but trouble. Mr. Summers finishes calling names, and everyone opens his or her papers. Word quickly gets around that Bill Hutchinson has got it. Tessie argues that it wasn't fair because Bill didn't have enough time to select a paper. Mr. Summers asks whether there are any other households in the Hutchinson's family, and Bill says no because his married daughter draws with her husband's family. Mr. Summers asks how many kids Bill has, and he answers that he has three. Tessie protests again that the lottery wasn't fair. Mr. Graves dumps the papers out of the box onto the ground and puts five papers in for the Hutchinsons. As Mr. Summers calls their names, each member of the family comes up and draws a paper. When they open their slips, they find that Tessie has drawn the paper with the black dot on it. Mr. Summers instructs everyone to hurry up. The villagers grab stones and run toward Tessie, who stands in a clearing in the middle of the crowd. Tessie says, it's not fair, and is hit in the head with a stone. Everyone begins throwing stones at her. And that's it. That's The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. And the summary really does not do this short story justice. Please Google this short story. It's really easy to find. I will link the PDF on my website. It's very short. And the reason why I picked it was, well, a number of reasons, one of which it's, it's different than the other stories that we looked at this month. The other stories we looked at were very obvious in their haunting horror themes. I picked gothic horror short stories where the haunting and the eebie-jeebies and eeriness was very clear and upfront. But I wanted to pick a short story that was more sinister in a subdued nature. I don't think that the lottery is less scary than the previous stories that I picked. 
but it is definitely more subversive. One of the things that really stood out to me in the lottery when I read it for the first time is how normal the story reads up until the very last line. I'm going to go ahead and play an audio clip being read by actress Maureen Stapleton, published in 1944 by Harper Audio. I do think this is still under copyright, so I'm not going to play too long, but I wanted to play the first paragraph or so, and I want you to pay attention to the adjectives used. So we'll go ahead and listen to that. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play. Wasn't that just amazing? I mean, listen to the adjectives used. At the very beginning, the day is described as clear and sunny. It's described as having the warmth of a summer day and the trees and flowers are blossoming. The grass was nice and fragrant. People were excited to be outside. The children are merrily running around because they're freshly out of school. And I think that's one of the reasons what makes the lottery as a short story so great is that I would say 90% of the short story is described in this positive language. You don't, you as the reader don't understand what's going on. And if you ignore the light and foreshadowing, it just seems like a nice summer day where the villagers are gathering around. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes, the lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. I love that sentence because in it, it just conveys that what's happening with the lottery is just another village activity. It's compared to a square dance, for goodness sake. And it, it tries to lull this reader into a sense of conformity of village values. And I think that's what makes the the murder of Tess so violent at the end. At the beginning, I talked about that the short story is very popular in high school literature classes. And I think it's because there are very strong literary tropes that are easily picked out. The first one, of course, I would say is the strongest is foreshadowing. It's this idea of the lottery. There's a bunch of foreshadowing in the story, one of which is talking about the boys running around and picking up stones. This idea of long-lasting traditional values with the description of the black box. If you really read into it, you start to get some of these sinister pings. But I feel like it's weaved so well into the story that it just works so well with the parallels of the positive imagery. The other reason why I think it is so successful as a story to teach in classrooms is this idea of traditionalism. This story was written in 1948, so right after World War II and right at the beginning of the Cold War. And when we think about how Americans were feeling at the time, we have a strong sense of uber-patriotism. We have the start of the Red Scare and conformatism. We have the start of the scare of communism. And so this idea of traditional values This idea of conformity 
are starting to become incredibly strong tropes in American society. And that's what Shirley Jackson is really hitting on here. She makes it a story about the village homogeny because those traditions were valued at the time. And so it's not until we get to the end where the reader is feeling a sense of horror because the people of this village are okay with blatant murder of one of their own. And that's one of the tropes that really is clear in Jackson's story. It shows how these townspeople are very rigid. They are unquestioning of traditional rituals that when you look at independently and you look at without that lens of traditionality is these rituals are brutal. They're savage. That it, it condones a murder. But people are going with it because that's how everything was done. And again, at the beginning of the story, when they're talking about old man Walters, I think his name was, and people are like, well, they're talking about how other villages have stopped the lottery. And the old man of the town was like, oh, we can't do that. We'd be no better than cavemen if we're getting up our values. But when you really look at it, there's no reason to have this lottery. It's literally condoning the killing of an innocent person. Another reason why I think this is a popular high school piece of literature and something that I think Jackson does really well is there's no sense of where this takes place. It could be any city in America. And I think that adds a level of horror and eeriness that is not seen in the previous stories that we talked about. Because this story could happen anywhere. When we think of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the ghost summoning, things like that, it has a very specific setting. Especially The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, it's very tied to its roots, I guess no pun intended. But the lottery, I think some of the sinisterness that comes from it is that it really could be any town in America. It's never explicitly stated where it's from. It's just, it's a small town with a village of everyday Americans. So overall, again, what I think makes this story so effective for readers is its talk of tradition, of cultural performing, seemingly irrational rituals, because that's what's always been done. And further, this idea of kind of magical thinking or just the group mentality, that this idea that this village has faith in something, and so people have control over an action. And that's why the lottery has been done year after year, is that it gives the villagers a sense of control. Further, another key aspect is morality. And it really brings up gray morality. And I think this is something that was great to bring up among high schoolers' minds, especially is, you know, asking the question, is the lottery moral? As the reader, we can easily say, no, it's absolutely not moral. You're, still, you're killing an innocent person. Yet, if you ask the people of the village, they don't see anything wrong with this because that's what has always been done. We see this as something easily to dismiss as pointless and barbaric, but to the villagers, it's a superstitious and it needs to be done. Plus, the story really focuses on the nature of evil. What is being evil? Are the villagers evil for doing what they, for stoning Tessie to death? Are there good people who can do unspeakable things? Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? 
And so I really think that this story can spark a debate that uh, is different than some of the stories that we talked about this month. It's still, I don't know, still really haunting, I think. And I think what's scariest of all to me as a millennial is this idea of conformity. And I talked about that. I really think that this is an effective story in high schools because the nature of being a teenager and finding oneself and growing into oneself, talking about conformity in the classroom and seeing it in a piece of literature, I think can be very resounding to students and it could be an effective way to really get them to think beyond themselves. And so I didn't really mean for this podcast episode to be like, a champion of why the lottery should be taught in high schools. But the more I talk about it, the more I warm up to this idea, because I think it's a haunting story that could catch teenagers off guard because when they first read it, they're not really going to see until the end, like the horror aspect. And I think it could like really surprise them. But also I think it can go into some really deep thoughts about life and teach literary analysis because of some various obvious tropes. But in any case, I think that the lottery is a must-read for everyone, especially in this spooky season. It's very short. If you want to read something more along the lines of traditional gothic horror, Shirley Jackson wrote Haunting at Hill House, which I think might be her most popular story. I'm not sure. But it's also a fantastic read. The plot alternates between two timelines. It's really cool. And it follows five adult siblings whose paranormal experiences at Hill House continue to haunt them in present day. And it uses flashbacks depicting events leading up to the eventful night in 1992 when the family finally fled from the mansion. And it contains the traditional gothic horror tropes that we saw in The Ghost Summons, that we saw in The Lady Mate's Bell, and as well as The Headless Horseman. So it is what I would consider a more traditional look at gothic horror by Jackson. But I really think Jackson adds her spin on it because she uses adjectives so well to paint scenes. And I really love it. And I really think it's perfect for young adult readers because it introduces them to some complicated and complex literary tropes, but in a very digestible and easy way. So again, this podcast episode wasn't supposed to be like toward high school teachers, but if you're a high school teacher and you're looking for something to teach, I advocate for Shirley Jackson. I think her stuff's cool. I think it's easily digestible and something interesting that students would find fascinating. It's not bone dry. It's not going to bore them to death. And you can still add that sense of eeriness in the month of October or in the fall when you're looking for some haunting pieces to talk about. In any case, that's it for me this week. Again, I am taking the month of November off for a well-deserved break. Plus, I am working on a number of projects and it'll give me time to kind of catch up. But there are a bunch of nursery rhymes that talk about winter and Christmas and other fun holiday things. And so I'm very excited for the month of December, where I will spend the month talking about holiday-themed nursery rhymes. Stay tuned again if you'd like to listen to my presentation that I'm giving at the American Folklore Conference. It will be available on sale on my Patreon, and you can find it via my website, link in the description below. 
I'm also looking for general support on the podcast for things like hosting my website and paying for software and things like that. But stay tuned where I will continue to talk about the weirdness of nursery rhymes. Thank you for listening to a Tisket Tasket podcast. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. If you found value in today's content, please share with others and consider leaving a review. Also, follow Gina on all social media platforms.